Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is up, everybody, and welcome to the All-NBA Show, part of the All-City Podcast Network. I'm your host, Adam Mattes, and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Tim Legler, in a new location today. Legs, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Good. In, in the Big Apple today. Um, I'm pretty good. I was looking forward to some games last night that didn't materialize very well. We, we did not have a great night of games um, in terms of point differential. Some of the ones that weren't very good on paper ended up being pretty close and some of the games that looked good and interesting were blowouts. So it, it wasn't, it was a weird night in the league. We are, you said this is dog days. We're officially in the dog days. And we've had a couple nights now like this where the games haven't necessarily been competitive. And I saw something last night, Legs, that I had never seen in the NBA. DNP ice from DeAndre Ayton. Did you see this, this headline? <laughs> DeAndre Ayton yeah. did not attend the game last night because the roads were too icy. Allegedly, the Blazers even sent some people to his house to try to help get him to the arena. Did not work. I've never seen that before. Well, it reminded me when Pop uh, Popovich one time on the, on the sheet sat his guys and put DNP old which I thought was pretty yeah. funny. Uh, it kind of yeah. remi- reminds me of that. You might as well, hey, listen, get creative with those things. The guys aren't going to play. Be a little bit more specific. So, yeah, that's, I saw that headline. It was pretty weird. I heard a story one time about Doug Moe with the Nuggets in the 80s. They had a game at Utah, and there was a huge blizzard, and Doug Moe just thought the game was canceled. So he was at home, you know, having a beer, and they call him up. He's in jeans and a flannel, and he goes, oh, we're playing? Goes to the, the flight, flies out, shows up to the game, didn't even have a bag, just shows up in his flannel and coached the game and then went home. I thought that was hilarious. Um, but DeAndre Hayden. <laughs> That's a new one for us. You get something new in the NBA every night. Today, guys, we are going to be talking about the trade from the Pacers. I think it's a very interesting trade. I mean, can't wait to get Legs' thoughts on it. And then we're going to look at, as the trade deadline is getting closer and closer, we're going to look at contending teams that might be one trade away and who most need to make a trade. We'll get into all that and more on today's show. We're presented by DraftKings Fantasy Sports. Check out what DraftKings has to offer this season with code ALLNBA. Because life's more fun when you're in on the action. DraftKings, the crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Agent eligibility restrictions apply. Void were prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. All right. Let's start with this trade, Legs. The Pacers make a move. This was a move that had been rumored, actually, for quite a while. This happens in the NBA sometimes. You see a trade coming, and then it happens. The Pacers receive Pascal Siakam. They also get a future second-round pick. And outgoing is Bruce Brown, who they just signed. Jordan Nwara. A handful of first-round picks. And then also uh, New Orleans was involved in this trade in a, as, as sort of a facilitator in a secondary trade. They uh, received cash, cash considerations, I believe, from the Pacers um, just to help facilitate this one. But the big piece is Pascal Siakam going to the Pacers. The Pacers are a team that have sped up their rise, although they are sitting at currently at seventh in the Eastern Conference. But they have been a surprise team this year. They go to the in-season tournament fi- uh, final. They look like they needed to make this move to, to get over the hump. What do you make of pairing Halliburton and Siakam? Do you like this deal for them? 
absolutely love this deal. I'm a big Pascal Siakam guy, and I think that's how this this trade ultimately will be viewed through the lens of how you view Pascal Siakam. Like, how much do you value him? How good do you think he is? How big of an impact guy is he at both ends? For me, the, I, I I definitively say he's 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 a a big factor in all of those areas. So I, I've been a Pascal Siakam guy from the beginning. Um, and now Indiana adds a guy that you think about this, look at their team outside of Halliburton. This is now the second best offense creator on their roster. They just added yeah. a guy that's got, you know, six, six, nine length that can play the three can play the four. And this now becomes your second best offense generator getting his own offense. Indiana plays this pace with a bunch of guys who can shoot and they share it and they so they get some cuts and slashes and transition stuff. And Halliburton is the main guy, you know, that, that offense generator, the motor. Now you add the guy that's now going to be your second guy. So when Halliburton's on the floor, the ball's going to be in Pascal Siakam's hands all the time. And he is very, very good at uh, open floor, getting to the rim, He's got a high motor in terms of his ability to turn and run from the defensive end of the floor, get out, fill those lanes, fill the wings, throw it ahead to him. Very good at attacking in the open floor. But he's also very good at another in another area, which is attacking closeout defenders. He's one of the best in the league at attacking yeah. closeout guys. Now, people sometimes, I think, Adam, overcommit to him because he's only a 32% three-point shooter. It's not like he's out there you know, shooting at a 40% clip. Um, but you do react. He's good enough, and on certain nights he can get hot from there, so you do react to it. And the Pacers create a ton of closeout situations because they have dribble, drive, kick. That's their offense, basically. They spread you out, dribble, drive in gaps, kick it out to the next shooter. Siakam's going to be part of that, and he's so good at attacking those guys and, and, and getting to the rim and finishing. He also significantly elevates you, I think, defensively. With his yeah. versatility and length, it's something that Indiana really needed. They play a lot of you know mid-size wing type guys. They're not very good defensively, although they've been a lot better over the last month. Now you know you you actually can can win some games if you have to get stops late if you've got Siakam and as a guy that can go guard the Jason Tatum's and Jalen Browns and the Giannis's of the world. Like he can do a reasonable job on those guys. Certainly better than what you have. So I love it from Indiana's perspective. I love the way that they, I think, changed the way they view their team, Adam, um, since the beginning of the season. They're looking at the East or looking at their team and saying, wow, because of the emergence of Halliburton and where he has taken this franchise, they're looking at an opportunity to get in there early on a guy like Siakam and not make this some bidding war near the deadline. They went in early and they went in aggressively, and they were able to get a guy now that I think significantly elevates them and how we're going to view them going forward. You mentioned I, I the you mentioned all three things that I think uh this trade impacts defense, transition, and then attacking closeouts or the secondary creation. And I'll start right there because we've talked about this with Dallas a lot that around Luca, you want to put a lot of shooting. But if it's not shooting, if you have to make up for a lack of shooting, you need guys that can attack closeouts and that can attack a scramble defense. That's what I think you have here. You have an A plus uh lead initiator in Tyrese Halliburton a plus one of the best in the NBA so you're going to be getting scrambled defenses a lot you're going to be getting kickouts and to have Siakam now who can attack downhill off of those to me that is an elite option for a guy that can sort of 
be your secondary weapon once the defense is already compromised. That's why I think he works in a half-court setting in a way that is not going to lower uh, Indiana's floor at all. I actually think it raises their, them because it gives them the secondary part. So the first part is just that half-court. Now you have another guy who's probably – he can initiate some offense for sure, but now it's going to be when Tyrese Halliburton compromises the defense and swings it to a shooter, they shoot. When they he swings it to Siakam, you've got shooters around him now that he can go downhill and attack, and it just makes them almost even more impossible to guard in the half court. Yeah, and and you know he he he's so long, you know he he's listed I think at six nine. He's he just plays so much longer than that. Yeah, he fits so well with these guys, Adam, because his his first couple strides from the defensive end to get out to, to make the transition to the other end of the floor are so good and so consistently relentless. He he just plays so hard. When you watch the Toronto Raptors play since the day Siakam got there and started to become a rotational player and then eventually emerged as an all-star and a guy that was in, you know a key cog on a champion, you started to notice the one thing that jumped out always was he this guy is just seems like he's playing harder longer than everybody else on the floor. And yeah. he creates offensive opportunities for himself because of that. You know, he's not a guy that is going to overpound the ball. Sometimes, you know, he'll go into ISO mode and he'll dribble a little bit between his legs and cross, and then he'll turn, back you down. But it's always like with a purpose and taking advantage of a size matchup typically. Right. Other than that, the stuff he does is pretty decisive. It's going to be a hard slash. It's going to be a run, throw ahead, take it to the rim to try to finish. Or it's going to be the ball gets swung and and you attack some closeout guy, get into the paint and either get something up on the glass or find somebody. Um, I just love the fact that they've given Halliburton, I think, a pressure release valve as another guy on the floor that can go and like attack matchups because the guys that they have now around Halliburton, that's not really their game. They are finishers, whether it be catch and shoot guys or slashers, they're going to finish the play. Siakam can help begin the play. Um, Or if Halliburton runs something on one side, it's not there. They reverse it. The ball comes to the other side, ends up in Siakam's hands. You can go run a secondary attack from there, Um, whether it's a ball screen or ISO or just a straight line dribble drive. He just gives them a totally different profile offensively next to Halliburton than what they had. So they've become – they've already been one of the most interesting teams in the league. Now I just think that they actually now are a team you're going to be watching hard the rest of the year to see how they stack up. And we don't think they're they're going to be on the level of Boston, but right. with the way that they've owned the Bucks, okay, you you're now going to look at them and compare them to teams like Milwaukee and Philly, and then certainly anybody after that in that clump of teams in the middle. Indiana may have just positioned themselves to make a real run at like the four spot in the Eastern Conference. I think that's not out of their out of out of their reach. It's so fascinating to me that the Pacers are four and one against Milwaukee, don't play him again, and then have this giant trade that completely changes their team. You know, I think they still have a lot of their same identity, but now you will wonder, okay, I was looking forward to that matchup because I'm with you. I don't I still don't view Indiana as currently constructed as a contender. And it's hard to make such a big trade halfway through the year and become a contender in that year. This, to me, more sets them up for the coming years to build around Tyrese and Siakam. But 
I do look at this one and go, well, Siakam is a guy that theoretically, okay, that gives you a defensive, versatile defensive long player that can match up with Giannis, and you already had that matchup. So when you look at him, I mean, are you with me that you don't necessarily view them as contenders, but do you still view them as first-round upset spoilers, or do you see them, um, did this strengthen that, lessen it? How, how do you view that in the immediate return? Yeah, I think they'd be a problem in a series for any team outside of Boston. I mean, I, you know, Boston Boston just has too much. And Boston can Boston can defend with the wings they can put on the floor. They can defend a team like Indiana in transition. Um, but you've already seen what they've done in Milwaukee, and I've talked about why that's a problem for the Bucs because they're bigger and slower than they've been in the past. And big and slow against the Pacers is a real problem unless those bigs are absolutely pounding him on the other end. And that, that's, that hasn't been the case with the bigs that Milwaukee's played against them. You know, Philly, same thing. I mean, Philadelphia beat is, is a massive problem for everyone, um, particularly if you play him, you know, single coverage. And, you know, we're going to touch on, I think, the Denver-Philly game that took place right. in, a, in a little bit. Yeah. You know, but if you want to play him that way, he's going to destroy everybody. So he's a problem for everyone, including the Pacers, obviously. But – you know, outside of that, like when you look at Philadelphia, Philadelphia's not putting a fear in anybody defensively. And right. if you play a team like Indiana, yeah, man, that that could be a problem. <laughs> Just the right. sheer numbers they can put up on you and the pace that they play. can, can and, and even for a guy like Embiid, like that can wear you out change, changing ends of the floor. Um, so I think Indiana now, yeah, I think that they can be potentially a four seed they're a game and a half right now out of that spot. Cleveland is red hot right now, and they've now grabbed yep. the four spot. They're red hot. They're playing great. Um, Indiana's a game and a half back of that and just got significantly better, I believe. Right. So yeah. I think they could either potentially be hosting a first-round playoff series or playing one of those top teams in a series as long as you can avoid Boston. I think that you can really have a super interesting long series against either Philly or Milwaukee, or whoever that team would be if it's not Indiana getting the four spot. The middle of the East is interesting because different teams have taken turns being the hot team. And as you mentioned, it's Cleveland right now, They lose, which is they lose Mobley and then they become the hot team. The Knicks make a trade. They're the hot team now. So the Pacers have fallen maybe behind those two teams at the moment. But as you mentioned, avoid the eight seed. That's where Boston won, is going to be 1-8. All those other teams have these vulnerabilities uh, that that I think you can go into the, the playoffs confident, at least in that first round. But the immediate future of this is interesting, but I think the long-term future of this is much more interesting, at least to me, because now you have your one-two building block, Tyrese Halliburton and Pascal Siakam. There's a, obviously an age gap between those two players, but I think you have a window. You know, Siakam's only, I think, 30 years old. So you have a window here. Uh, he's 29. He's not even 30. You have a window here to kind of build with around these two players. Who else do you consider the core there? And on the team currently, you got Buddy Hill, you got Naismith, you got Turner, Nemhard, Matherin. Um, who of those guys, even Obi Toppin, if you want to include him, who of those guys do you kind of consider core pieces? And what would be a third piece if you're one, two is Tyrese Halliburton, Siakam? Where do you think the third most important player is going to come from? What spot? It's it's Turner and Matherin are the two guys. Miles Turner's critical to them. You know, you think about what are what are they going to look like? And look, he's not necessarily the major impact defensive rim protector that he was because he's become just more of a perimeter-based player. In a lot of ways, you know, he's like Sergi Baca in a lot of right. ways, like Sergi Baca in Oklahoma City 
was like this incredible backline defender, like athletic, covering all kinds of ground. And then as he emerged offensively and became more of a perimeter player offensively, it seemed to affect where he was positioned defensively a lot too. So Turner's not that, but he can be in spots in the game. And just what he gives them with his his ability to space the floor with his shooting and, and drawing out the bigs, like Embiid's going to have to go out there. Giannis and Brooke Lopez are going to have to go out there and he's always positioned there and then gives them legitimate size on the other end. And then I think Matherin, I mean, I, I just, I've, I've loved him since they got him. Uh, I just think the, the, there are several more layers, I think, to Benedict Matherin's game um, in, in terms of consistent big time offensive production. He gives it to you now, you know, spottily because that's the way their team is set up. It's like Halliburton pretty much every night. And then it's who's it going to be tonight? As long as we get it from a couple right, of you guys right. and give, give us 20. Then, then we're going to be able to do our thing. And it's not always Halliburton. Some nights it's Toppin. Some nights it's Heald. Some nights it's Turner. They get it from different places. But I think Matherin is the guy that's most likely to emerge in this league as a consistent, like legitimate, you know, 18 to 20 point scorer. I think that can be his ceiling. So I think those are the two most important pieces after uh, Halliburton and Siakam. And I think that Turner, in a, in a lot of ways, might be a perfect front court pairing for him for for Siakam. And one, it is now two very good defensive players in your front court at the four and the five. So you have some rim protection behind a front line that needs probably a lot of help and a lot of uh, a lot of rim protection. But offensively, Siakam needs spacing. And I think that I like your Serge Ibaka comp because I do think that is how Turner plays nowadays: is that he's outside on the perimeter more and he allows space, which is what you need for Siakam. So I like that. It's even possible that you just view Turner as the third piece of this big three, and then we'll see what Matherin kind of develops into. Uh, maybe he he you know needs that spot eventually. Maybe you have to start figuring out how you're going to afford this long term. But I like the Halliburton Siakam Turner to me. Just seems like the two and the three around that feels like it's easy to build around. Easy meaning the skill set you need if your core is Halliburton Siakam and Turner from a shooting guard and a small forward is you're going to need one of those guys to be a defender who's at least something on offense. That's a little hard to find. And then you need one guy who's a floor spacer, which is actually pretty easy to find in today's NBA. So I like that core long-term. I just think they have something there. And both Siakam and Halliburton to me are winning players. They make winning plays. They're smart. They're high IQ. Uh, you're going to have something. One, one, last, one, last note on, one last note on it, if I could. The one, If there is any downside, I to this at all for Indiana. Siakam will turn 30 in April, and you know you don't make this move unless you are fully committed to re-signing him. And I think he probably had to have had some kind of indication from his camp that he would yeah, resign. You can't, yeah, you can't give up. Yeah, you can't give up Brown and all these picks if you don't know that you're going to resign him. And you're talking, you know, 260 million, I believe, is what I read over five years is what he's going to be due. Um, and you know, it may sound like crazy money, but you know, there's a lot of guys in the league making that, it feels like. So I'm not cutting the check, so I'm not stressing about it. But if there is any downside to it is, man, wouldn't it be nice if you were getting him when he was like 27 years old instead right. of about to turn 30, right? But regardless, I just think that they sped up, Indiana Pacers sped up internally when they want to compete and be relevant because of the start to the season and because of what they have discovered they have in Halliburton. And I think it changed. They recalibrated how fast they want to get there, and that's why they they targeted 
Siakam. I think they probably also had some interest in Mikhail Bridges. I think maybe, you know, they looked at an OG Ananobi probably. They probably looked at that like a lot of teams yeah. did. Yeah. Um, but this one, I think, is the one that makes the most sense for them. Um, so now the other side of this is the Toronto Raptors. And just last week, Legs, we were talking about the teams that it feels like it's over for. And we mentioned Atlanta and Toronto. Toronto so far has made the moves. They they had OG Ananobi to deal. They had Pascal Siakam. They have now completed both of those trades and hit the reset button. What do you think of where they're at? They have Bruce Brown right now. And by all accounts, it sounds like Bruce is going to be on the move, that they're going to use him as, a, as another trade at the deadline. And it makes sense. When you start to go through who does Bruce Brown fit with, it's pretty much every contending team. So I think that they have a good trade ship there to complete it. But you go to Emmanuel quickly, R.J. Barrett, Scotty Barnes. You kind of hit the reset button and now have those three guys, all of whom are you know at least relatively young. I know R.J. Barrett a, a, a little bit up there. What do you think of what they've done now, getting rid of their two former core pieces and now and now having these guys as their stable? Yeah, you know it's interesting. I I think a lot of teams that have made this decision. Um, when you kind of transition from the old guard and, and a group, a core group that had a lot of success, and now they've kind of all been jettisoned off. Um, and usually, when that happens, I think I I look at what the team does and, and you know how low are they willing to go in terms of extending out to the future when they'll be good again. And I, I feel like they're kind of in the middle, Adam. I don't feel like they made trades that immediately you go, oh, wow, okay, that's – wow, that's great value. They get back R.J. Barrett and quickly, you know, and, and Bruce Brown, and wow, okay, here we go. The Raptors are going to get in this thing. And you don't feel that way, but you also don't feel like, wow, I love – you know, they got they got a couple of you know, 19-year-old rookies that, you know, look like they could be all-stars one day. They didn't get that either, you know. So I, I'm not really sure how I feel about what the Toronto Raptors did. I don't know that I feel much differently about them as we sit here now, as I did really, you know, two weeks ago leading up to it, they were a team that has enough talent on a given night to be kind of tough to play against, but not consistent enough to really be a factor in the Eastern Conference. And I kind of feel like that's still where they are because I don't know that these these picks are going to amount to much for them. You're, you're talking about mid-round, mid mid-first-round picks. These aren't yeah. going to be lottery picks. These aren't going to be top five picks where a lot of times teams break it down and you trade all-star, an all-star player like Seattle, that's maybe you get return. Okay, well, this is going to turn into a top five pick, and now we're really looking ahead to the future because of what that could be. That's not really the case either. So I don't know if I feel much differently about the Raptors one way or another. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on what you think they have done positioning themselves moving forward because that's what it's all right. about when you start yeah. to trade these veterans away. Well, what I, when I look at them, what I see is a lot of expiring money. And I've always, Masai Ujiri is a Pat Riley type rebuilder, which is to say he is not a, um, a Sam Presti rebuilder, which is, or, or Danny Ainge, let's stockpile a bunch of assets, let's make this long-term view. It's, all right, how can we position ourselves to pivot to a completely new era in short order? And that's what this team looks like to me. So I do like, look, I'm not the biggest R.J. Barrett fan, if we're being honest, but I really like Scotty Barnes and I like Emmanuel Quickly. So you have those guys, those three guys as sort of a core, and now you have an enormous amount of uh, cap space going into this next year to be able to add to that or pivot, maybe move one piece, one of those guys. Maybe it's an R.J. Barrett that you find another landing spot for and you open up uh, to be able to make a new era here in very, very short order. So that's what I look at here is this doesn't to me look like 
us if you view if you judge this of what they've done as okay they're building around barrett quickly and barnes i don't think i love it but if you look at they are now set up the way the miami heat always seem to set themselves up to make one move and now completely reset and now you have something um i think they're set up really nicely for that can toronto pull that off can they make the big trade this summer or sign the big name this summer we'll see that's how you eventually will will grade the trade but they seem to have the flexibility to do that if that's the if they're able to pull it off, well, let me, so that's let me ask you one follow up. Let me ask you a follow up real quick to that. What is what do you think ultimately the ceiling is for Scotty Barnes? Because I, I think that's what a lot of this is going to be based on when you look at Toronto. Like, is Scotty yeah. Barnes in your mind? Is Scotty Barnes does he have the potential to be the best player on a team that legitimately can contend? Do you do you think he can become that good offensively? I don't know that he's ever going to be that. If you look at the teams in this league, Adam, that you know, however many teams you want to say are contenders, whether you think it's legitimately three or four or five or six, whatever it may be, the top guys on those teams are capable of 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 like averaging thirty in a playoff series against top level competition, yeah. because that's what those guys have to do. If you're the best player on one of those teams, all well, of those real quick, teams. how many players are can be the best player on a championship team? Because I know we throw that phrase out a lot, but I actually think that number is like seven or eight guys. It's not that many players, in my opinion. Well, no, that yeah, that's probably about right. I, there might be might, if we really started listing them, I might think there's maybe more than that, but n- not many. So probably less than ten. So yeah. I agree with you. So, but that's my point. So, what what is Toronto? Because isn't the uh, ultimately the object of every franchise to become a you know a championship contender. So that's my point. If right. if you're just thinking, well, Scotty, as their coach said, you know, when he had the meltdown after the game about the officiating and said he's the face of the league, he's going to be the face of the league. And I I, I kind of, you know, I necessarily didn't agree with that. I don't know if Scotty Barnes will become the face of the league. Is he a first team all NBA caliber player at some point? You know, that's that's my question because yeah. that's ultimately how you're always going to view the Raptors. How do you view what's more to grab for Scotty Barnes as an all-around player? Because the guy can defend. He handles the ball incredibly versatile. Yep. You know, you know, but is he that guy that can be the driving force on a team that ultimately yeah. contends? I think that's what the internal conversations in Toronto have to look like. And I think in, in analyzing the franchise, that's what it looks like. Because otherwise – you know, you're 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 just wasting your time if you don't think he can be that because then you're saying, well, no, they still need to go get that guy. And how are they right. exactly going to do that? I've almost viewed Scotty Barnes the way I viewed Siakam five, six years ago, where I, I love him. I think he's an incredible player all around. And maybe Toronto views the same thing. If you look at it quickly, Scotty Barnes, both of those guys are good. I think you have your number two and your number three, and you can build a roster around that. And then maybe you, I imagine if you're Toronto and you know how free agency usually goes for you, I imagine you look at that and say, is there a Kawhi trade out there at some time down the line? Do we set ourselves up to be one piece away and we have the assets to go boom? There it is. That player needs out. We got him. And even if it's a short window, we go for it. So I think it's an easy question. Is Scotty Barnes a number one on a championship team? No, but that's, again, that's not a slight on him. I just think very few right. players are the number one on a championship team. And, and if you don't have that, set yourself up to be able to pivot to get them in the near future. Uh, the last thing, and I forgot to bring this up when we were talking about the Pacers, so I'm bouncing back to the Pacers here, but they are 27th in defense. Does Siakam, what does he raise them to as currently constructed? I'm not saying given their starting point, but from this point forward, 
Does he make them a top 15 defense? Does he keep them at 27th? Are they the exact same defense they were before, somewhere in between? They'll move a few spots up overall that's statistically by, by by the defensive metrics we use. They'll move up a few spots. but that's And part of the reason is because of the way they play offensively. You know, teams that play the way Indiana plays offensively, like you don't want long, drawn-out defensive possessions. It shortens right? the game. Yep. Like yep. honestly, I'm, I'm not up. saying I'm not saying you I'm not saying you dare teams to score. It's not that you're letting them score. You're not doing that. But if you if you want to, your your team is not built to play lower scoring games where you're grinding out possessions. That actually hurts you if yep. you play games like that. Point. So so how how you know how many points per game do, you know can they cut off of it? You know a few in terms of points per hundred possessions and their defensive rating. That's not what it's about for Indiana, ultimately. It's going to be about, here they go. They're in a tight game. Hopefully, for them, to their liking, it's 122-120, and you got three minutes to go, and now you have a guy that can guard Jason Tatum better than what you had, a guy that can guard Jalen Brown, a guy that can guard Giannis better than what you had, um, a guy that could switch onto a Tyrese Maxey if that's what it takes in that possession. Like, that's what you have added. A guy that in the big moments gives you a better chance to force a contested shot on this particular possession. That's more important than saying, oh, they, they're going to just start, you know, really uh, climbing the ladder in terms of defensive rating because I don't think that that necessarily helps them stylistically. Well, I, it's an interesting trade. I love Indiana, and I'm very curious. And I like Siakam. It's funny, because even just seeing the chat, I just glanced over at the chat. There's a lot of people that hate Siakam and think he's overrated. I don't think he is. I just think he's Damn a player man. that is not going to look good in the situation he was in, meaning he's not a number one guy. But you put him around a, a, a Halliburton, and I just think his good the good parts of his game are going to shine a lot more. All right, let's take a break. On the other side, I do want to make some notes on the 76ers Nuggets game from a couple days ago, just because we didn't get great games last night. So we'll rewind it two days for that one, which was a phenomenal game and a big narrative game. And then we'll move on and talk quickly about some of the teams that might need to make a trade at the deadline and what kind of things would they need? What are they missing? What are they deficient in? We'll go to that on the other side. But first, I want to tell you guys about our presenting sponsor, which is DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. If you were wondering, the Indiana Pacers, how did this affect their title odds this year? Not much. They're still plus 7,000, which is about 15th best odds in the NBA on DraftKings Sportsbook. So unless you think that this trade is going to make them instant contenders, you probably want to stay away from that one. But we, Or you can just bet $5 on that one. And when you lose, as you almost inevitably will, you'll get $200 in instant bonus bets with their great promotion that they're running. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now with code ALLNBA and new customers bet $5 on any NBA game and get $200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code ALLNBA. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 878-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21 older age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Also want to tell you guys about Game Time. This is the number one app if you're looking to go to a concert or a game this weekend. It's about time to start making weekend plans. If you don't have plans, hop on the Game Time app. Check out the arena near you and see what kind of deals you can get 
on the games. They have that awesome feature at the top right of the main screen. There is the all-in pricing, so you don't have to have, think you get one price and then you go and the fees are worth are more expensive than the ticket. Hit the all-in price and you know exactly what your checkout price is uh, right at the end. And then one of my favorite things to do is if you don't have plans and you open up the Game Time app, you might find those flash deals, last-minute deals where the prices drop rapidly. You might be able to get into your arena with good seats for $20, $30, $40. They also have that feature where you can click on your seat and it'll tell you exactly what the view looks like from that seat inside the arena. So take the guesswork out of buying tickets at Game Time. Download the Game Time app and create an account. Use code ALLNBA for $20 off your first purchase. You could probably find a ticket to an NBA game this weekend for $20. So if you use code ALLNBA, you get $20 off your first purchase, and the purchase is $20. Boom, you just got a free game uh, for downloading the Game Time app. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code ALLNBA for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest prices guaranteed. All right, Legs, let's rewind a little bit and go back to Tuesday night where the big game happened between the 76ers and the Nuggets. Fantastic game. First three quarters of the game, there wasn't a single missed shot. I I counted it. It was 100% shooting from both teams. Phenomenal offense. And then in the fourth quarter, the 76ers took over the game, and Joel Embiid in particular took over the game. He went for 41 points, 10 rebounds. Dominant performance from – or 10 assists, sorry, 7 rebounds. Dominant performance from him from start to finish. What stood out to you about this game? Well, I think I was surprised, and I always am surprised when teams kind of employ the strategy of just um, trying to play him with one guy. And I thought that that's when the game got away from Denver. And I know, look, I know it's not easy because he catches the ball at the elbows a lot. And he he turns and faces or on the wing. And that's not an easy place to double the guy from when when he's got the ball, he's turning and facing. Um, that's not an easy place to to double it from, but I I don't understand. And Boston went through this. You know, they played him that way, and he went for fifty on them. I I don't understand not forcing other yeah. people on this team to shoot the basketball no, at at all costs. That's what I'm doing if I'm playing Philadelphia. Now you don't necessarily double him every trip, but my goodness, you've got to make him see more traffic and give the basketball up early. Because look, he's a better passer than he was two or three years ago. He won't beat you by passing the basketball. And I don't think they've got enough firepower off like catching shoots and enough just offense creators to be able to beat you. So I was a little bit surprised that kind of Denver, I felt like kind of lived with his face up ISO game. And he's one of the best in the league at that jab step, 15 to 18 foot jump shot. He doesn't miss that shot very often. And I felt like he got what he wanted to get. So I don't think that Philadelphia really, you know, felt Denver's best effort defensively everybody was hyped about the match the individual matchup I feel like Embiid's always going to get the better of that statistically because he has to play a certain way as a scorer and Jokic doesn't and so you know the numbers are going to favor Embiid most of the time in terms of scoring but I was looking at Denver I thought maybe in a more complete package as a team in in the way that they played against Philly and winning that game but it, it didn't happen because Embiid was the guy that was in control and he controlled the entire tempo of the game in the fourth quarter and Denver didn't have an answer for that. I think Denver's because this is two games in a row that Denver has deployed the same strategy, which was, you know, to kind of force him outside the paint, let him catch the ball and then pack the paint around him, try to just stay there and keep him out. I think he had six points in the paint in that game. Problem is he had 35 points outside the paint and he was very comfortable. And to your point, this was a lot of, He catches on the elbow and Denver would leave Aaron Gordon out on him and they would almost dare him to shoot. 
but he's so comfortable from those spots and he catches a rhythm and you know this good jump shooters if you get comfortable first three or four shots you're in a rhythm the rest of the game comes easy to you and i thought denver did that in the second half though denver did throw double teams at him but they threw him to him one pass away and before he took a dribble so he had a lot of comfort. I mean, to start the second half, I think Philadelphia goes three for three from three-point line and a shooting foul, so really four threes before Denver calls a timeout on four straight possessions. And I thought it was a lot of, okay, we're going to mix it up this time. We're going to double, but we're going to double in the easiest way for him to make reads. And so I thought that was another one where Denver's strategy on this one I just thought was a little bit strange. Yeah, look, and look with Philadelphia, if it, it's it's – a lot of their success is going to be determined on, on how they shoot from the three-point line. And they, they were almost 50% in this game. And they didn't take a ton. And I think that's that's to, to their to their liking. Philadelphia gets up there in the upper 30s or 40 three-point attempts. I think they're absolutely playing into your hands defensively. And they were determined not to do that because they didn't have to do it because of the areas of the floor that they were successful in. They didn't have to do that. And they, they were disciplined in that. Um, and if they're going to make 15 threes um, – and it'd be a plus nine against Denver for a three-point line, it's going to be tough because you know Embiid is going to be making a ton of mid-range shots, and he's going to get to the line a ton. If you supplement that with 15 made threes, Philadelphia's a problem for anybody that they play. Yeah. What did you think for, What did you see from Jamal Murray in this game? Did anything stand out to you about his game? Uh, I thought Jamal Murray was – I don't know. I thought he was kind of quiet and subdued. I didn't see a super aggressive Jamal Murray. I got, I, and there was a stretch when Jokic went off the floor – and I, in the second half, and I thought that's when Jamal Murray was going to like take over the game or try to, and he, and he just didn't really do that. He did. I did. You agree? I mean, you watch his team every single night. Did you feel like that Jamal Murray was ever got to that point when you know? Because there's sometimes when he goes in that mode for six eight minutes, when you can just tell the tempo and he's playing with, he's trying to light you up every right. trip. And I don't think he really got to that place in this game. I think he tried in the fourth quarter, and it was a rough quarter for him. Um, you know, I thought he game managed for most of it, and then the fourth quarter, he goes 0-4 shooting. He had two turnovers in the fourth, and I think he had another one where it was a 24-second violation that he sort of created. So, you know, basically three turnovers and 0-4 shooting. I thought that that was one of the big stories is Denver in this game, in the clutch, did not get good looks. And you credit – you know, the 76ers, I thought, made some big-time defensive plays, in, including and especially Joel Embiid. There were a couple plays where he's fronting Jokic. Murray goes for the drive. He recovers. Reggie Jackson goes for the drive. He recovers, and he challenges him. But I just thought both Reggie and Murray's execution in the fourth quarter was really bad. And I don't – I'm curious to see. These teams play again in nine days. I'm curious to see how much of that was a function of what the 76ers did versus how much of that was – you know, just a struggle from Jamal and, and Reggie in these particular games. Denver's clutch numbers last year were phenomenal, and obviously that translated into the playoffs where they were unbelievable in the clutch. This year, they haven't been quite great. I think there's something like uh, 11th or, or, or somewhere around there on in clutch offense, which I'm curious to see if that's something, a hangover, or if there's something real there about the Nuggets that they have lost in their clutch time execution. Yeah, I, I, it's middle of the season uh, doldrum, so we'll see. I, it's, it's You don't know that it's necessarily a trend at this time of the year. I'm really anxious to see them play again. This is one of those tantalizing uh, matchups when you talk about, wow, what would be the most entertaining finals matchup? This this is one of the ones we would look at because of yeah. these two players, right, and how it, it's different in the way that they have to attack it and approach it, but they're equally important to their teams. 
Um, and so that would be fascinating. But they get to play again, you said, in nine days. Hopefully everybody's available for that one. And uh, yeah. we can see what adjustments Denver makes in that one to make Embiid's night a little bit more difficult. It was a really good game, and I think it would be a great finals matchup. Yeah. I, I thought it was a really, really entertaining one. And for the second year in a row, Embiid got the better of that matchup, I think, pretty definitively. So that'll be something to follow. Let's get in now to trade season. We're not far away from the trade deadline. I want to start by proposing to you four teams that I think do not need to make a trade this year. Number one is the Boston Celtics. I put the Clippers, Pelicans, and Thunder in here. But Boston is the biggest one where they are currently the favorites. They have a great top five. They have good players off the bench. Sometimes making a trade can put set things backwards. I think if as good as Boston has played this year, and then especially how good their top seven guys have been in the rotation, I just think this is the one team that you can say for sure, does, in my opinion, does not need to make a move before the playoffs begin. Completely agree, and, and they, you know they they go deep. Even even some of their more marginal role players are guys that are impact guys. They they just and it's right. because of the way that they play, and everybody's in a great role. They, they, their role acceptance is tremendous on this team outside of their top two stars. Um, I agree. What 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 more can you can you add without taking a risk that you're damaging some of this chemistry that you have right now? They're right. the favorite to win the whole thing, and they should be the favorite to win the whole thing. And barring an injury to one of their top guys or some trade happening that we don't see coming from some other team um you know which we'll have we'll know that in about another month we'll know if that happened or not this is a team that should be expecting to win it all this year so what yeah. when you have that what why do you mess with it you know they they've got they've got what they need um because again the versatility defensively with what they've added i mean they added significant offensive pieces without sacrificing what they gave up defensively by losing Smart and Robert Williams. You had a holiday in Porzingis. You don't lose a whole lot. I mean, Williams is a little bit more of the spectacular shot blocker, but Porzingis is a guy that's consistently there. And then holidays every bit when Marcus Smart is on the perimeter. So to me, when you get that much firepower added and you don't really give up much defensively, you got a team that should win it all. And their expectation should be, and I think if they don't, it's absolutely a failed season for them because they right. are the front runner. They're in the best position. They're most likely going to have home court advantage throughout the finals. Yeah. Uh, the other team for me, the Clippers, you know, they have this Bones Highland there who they're not using. And a young player like that, you might as well trade him if you're not going to play him and, and try to recoup something. But when you talk about needs, their top five has been phenomenal. You've got Westbrook and Norman Powell off the bench who are locks. And then you have Daniel Tice and Mason Plumley, who, depending on the matchup, you know, you're going to go to one of those guys in a playoff series. You have all the different configurations with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard that you can throw out there, play small or what have you. This is a team, and when I was preparing for this, I was reading a bunch of, oh, they need a power forward. They need this or that. I look at them and think that's crazy. They had P.J. Tucker. They didn't use him. They didn't need him. I don't think this is a team that actually needs any peace. If you move both Thailand, future assets or something is what I would look at, or future trades. But I wouldn't necessarily think that they need a rotation piece for the playoffs. No, not at all. I agree with you. Uh, they just they they have they have more than enough. This team has more than enough talent to win it. That's the bottom line. It's going to come down to health for them um, and, yeah. and how seriously we take them. Talked about it before. Harden's in a great landing place now. He doesn't have the pressure to deliver big scoring nights for them to win in the playoffs. They've got the guys there that are going to have that pressure on them. They can be really, really good defensively with certain lineups put out there. Kawhi Leonard 
if you want, can play at the four spot and guard most fours in this league if you're playing a smaller lineup like that with one of those three bigs on the floor. So, no, I agree. There, you know, there's only so much that you can have. There's not enough minutes for anybody they would add right. to have a significant impact on this team. The Pelicans might be controversial here. We've talked about the Pelicans a lot on this show. Their needs are not necessarily personnel. Their needs are experience, maturity from their stars, consistency. I don't know that they're – I like the roster, and they have so many good role players. They have a lot of configurations. So they were another team that I looked at. And when you start to look at, okay, what position – is there a position they're deficient at? I don't think they are. I actually think that a trade might actually set them back because their thing is they need consistency from the guys that they already have. Yeah, I love their roster. I love their depth. They have a lot of impact role players that come in, and they're in there to do a specific thing, and they seem like they do it every night. I, for me, this is going to be health because all three of their top guys have had some health issues. And then and I you know, beat this drum a lot, but it's Zion Williamson's motor. Zion yeah, Williamson's yeah. motor is, to me, the biggest determining factor for this team making a serious run at the West um, and, and the urgency that he needs to play with to, to make a statement every night, I'm this team's best player. And, right. I, and on my bad nights, you know, I'm still giving you super high-level production. They have enough. They have enough to contend at the top with all that talent. They have a point, a wing, and a power player um, that gives them a one hell of a top three. And then they've got a bunch of role players slotted in that understand what they're out there to do and they impact the game. So I'm I'm, I'm good with them not doing anything either. And Zion, by all accounts, you know, has been better over the last month since it really became a storyline, that in-season tournament where he just looked out of shape. They looked uninterested. They looked unserious. The team has, I think that there was a lot of criticism coming out of that event. The team has gotten a little bit more serious. If you look at their last month or so, really since since Christmas, they don't have a bad loss. They lost to the Clippers. They lost to the Nuggets. And they lost to the Mavericks. You could maybe say that was a bad one, but the Mavericks have been on a heater. So I look at it and say, I think that they might have settled a little bit. And now you have three months where this team needs to grow up a year or two. Yeah. They need to grow up a year or two in the next three months. But that's not necessarily personnel-driven, in my opinion. And then the Thunder. The Thunder are just on a different timeline. We talked about them trading for Lowry Markinen a month ago. Actually, not even a month ago, a couple of weeks ago. Since then, the Utah Jazz have become the hottest team in basketball. Who saw that coming? And Oklahoma City, I think, also has um, maybe lessened the need. They've looked like a team that's lessened the need. I don't To make a, a contend-now move, they probably need a trade. But I think they're probably content to write out whatever it is they have in this year and maybe catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think with all these teams we're talking about right now, though, it's interesting always to think about what defines a successful season, you know, in, in general terms. Like, I think for the Pelicans, for me, it's win around and then battle somebody in a long series in the second round. Because at that point, you're talking about playing potentially a Denver or maybe it's a Clippers, you know, whoever that – maybe it's Minnesota – Whoever, and if it's Minnesota, you might even be a team that, hey, we can, this team doesn't have a lot of playoff experience. We can beat a team like right. Minnesota. So I think it's, I think it's that that's how ultimately we look at all these teams. Like what defines success for them this year? Because for all these teams, it's not winning a championship. It's not realistic to do that. But you certainly can fall short of that. If you lose in the first round, if you're Detroit, you lose. Um, well, it I guess it depends on the matchup. You know, they might not be favored and they lose a six game series in the first round to one of these top teams. Is that, is that disappointment? You know, I think it's right. then you kind of look, re, rethink how good are their top guys at that point. But I think all of these teams are talking about, let's be realistic in what they actually can attain this year. Yeah. All right, let's get on to the teams that do need to make a trade. 
I look at Milwaukee right now. I'm just so curious about what it is they are, are and are going to be right now because they don't look to me like title contenders and they do look like they need a move. And if I define that move, it's probably a wing stopper or a perimeter stopper that they need. We've talked a lot about Lillard Beasley to me is not a championship backcourt. So you start to look at the two guys that I actually love in Andre Jackson Jr. and Marjan Bochamp. But recently, Bochamp has not been playing a ton of minutes, almost like they're losing confidence in him as the season goes on. I think that's a mistake. I think they should be investing in him a little bit more. But nonetheless, if I look at that team, I've said this from the beginning of the year, and it's only become more true to me as I've watched them. That backcourt needs more defense if they're going to go up against some of the top teams. So to me, they need a trade before the deadline, and it's to bolster their defense at the point of attack. I'd agree. I think Beauchamp was a guy they thought could maybe take that leap. He hasn't really. Now let me ask you this. Do you think Jay Crowder coming back addresses that? No, because that's not I, – I think you need something that's more perimeter-oriented. Jay Crowder guard, is a guard-oriented defender. Yeah, a little yeah. more guard. Get around screens, you know, in particular. Yeah, so then I agree. If, if, if Crowder's not necessarily a solution to that, and he is a guy that will compete defensively, but, again, more – against like the bigger guys like the bigger wings he does a better job against those guys than the little uh guys that are super quick coming around screens with a live handle being creative like that's that's a different level of, of competitiveness at the point of attack than what crowd was going to give you but i do think he will help so I, I think we both agree i think some perimeter defense and it's been glaring to me how bad it's been for milwaukee this year uh, and it will ultimately could be their undoing that's probably where they need to look perimeter-based teams, and you look at, like, all right, the Knicks have Jalen Brunson. The Pacers have owned them in large part. They had a lot of perimeter creators. Maybe Bruce Brown was a big piece of that, so maybe they lose something there, but your main guy, Tyrese Halliburton, is still there. Are you going to put Beasley on him? It is, is it too easy to get Dame or Beasley switched out onto the perimeter in that matchup? You know, Tyrese Maxey. So it's not like they're not going to have players that they need to be able to contain in a playoff series, and I just don't trust that they have it. So to me, Milwaukee is a team that I think absolutely needs a trade at the deadline. Philadelphia is what a team that has a lot of assets. They've been on a roll when they've had uh, Joel Embiid healthy, which is most of the year. They have a, a good team right now, but you're sitting on some assets and some tradeability. I think they're also a team that probably needs to bolster one more piece into the rotation. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, and if I'm looking at something specifically for them, um, it's size at the guard spot. You know, Maxi. Mm is not a, get, a guy that's a real physical guard at that spot defensively. Uh, Patrick Beverly is, but he's small, man. And then De'Anthony Melton. De'Anthony Melton, like those are the guys that they're playing. So if they could find a guard with a little bit more size, a little bit more length, maybe somebody that's on one of these rosters that for whatever reason has potential but can't find minutes where they're at, I think there are minutes to be had in Philly. Is DeLon Wright a type of player that you could yeah. see there, a defensive guard? Yeah. So. That's that's one name, a smaller move. I mean, but he's a good player. He would be in your playoff rotation, and he could spot up and space the floor too. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good name. And I, and there's you know word out there that he might be available. So that's a good one. Uh, last team we're doing in the Eastern Conference, the Miami Heat, perpetually under the radar. They haven't been fully healthy, so some of this is hard to know because yeah. you want to see what the full complement of players look like. Or do they have enough depth? But do you see them as a team that needs to make a trade if they're going to be a serious contender the way they were last year? They don't really need a whole lot offensively because I think they've got a pretty they got pretty good chemistry with what they have and they've got a good pecking order offensively. They've got enough, I think, on that end. They've got shooting, they've got ISO players, they've got a very versatile big, 
And then they've got a secondary ball handler creator in Hero. So they've got a little bit of everything there. I think if they need one thing, maybe a little bit of rebounding and just defensive paint presence if Adebayo's not on the floor. I mean, Bam, right. Bam's a difference maker defensively, but, you know, he's only going to play 32 to 35 minutes a night. So what about those other 15 minutes? You need a little – you know, Kevin Love is, has been – surprisingly has still some pretty good moments, but he's not what he used to be as a presence on the defensive glass or, or you know, defensively in terms of, a, of any sort of rim protection or athleticism in there. Maybe there's a big to be had that gives you a little bit more defensive rebounding and, and athleticism. Let's go over to the Western Conference now and talk about Denver. The Denver Nuggets, you just watched them against the 76ers. Do they have the guys to go into a playoffs right now? We know their starting five is, is set. They got what they need there. But behind it, you're looking at Reggie Jackson. You're looking at Christian Brown, Peyton Watson. That's probably your top eight for a playoffs. Is that a top eight that wins a championship? Yeah, and that's the that's, – you're, you're a perfect person to answer this question. That's where my question would be about them from an outsider looking at this team is that has that turned into enough what you were hoping that would become with Christian Brown Reggie Jackson you know Strouder who I think was better early doesn't seem to really have a place right now for them um and then Peyton Watson I know you've been very high on him and and for for good reason but again I think the consistent production out of that spot that you were getting from Bruce Brown which was such a major difference for them last year in a championship run is that there on this team with those guys, those those supplemental perimeter players? Is it consistent enough out of that group or out of any one guy individually? That would be my question for you and for the Denver Nuggets. So where I've arrived on this, I think that Peyton Watson and Christian Brown are championship caliber defenders off of the bench, especially when they're flanked by good offensive players. And let's face it, Jokic would be the guy. If you if you told me you're staggering Jokic with those guys, I feel good because they both defend very well and Jokic's going to make offense easy for them. Where I'm arriving, and this is not somewhere I was at the start of the season, it really is over the last month, is Reggie Jackson has been very good for them as a scorer and a one-on-one player. But I wonder if he's been bad for them as an overall unit, meaning he's having a good year and the bench is having a bad year. And I wonder if he is the guy. If you're going to play, you're going to get into the playoffs and Jokic or Murray are going to be on the court at all times. You have your hub. Reggie Jackson then becomes less important as a hub in a playoffs. Bruce Brown last year was a secondary ball handler. He could take over those duties in the regular season, but in the playoffs, you always had a different hub or fulcrum on the offense. So Reggie Jackson is the guy that I'm starting to look at going, Denver has a top eight, but I wonder if swapping Reggie for a different type of player is going to make them better in the playoffs. I'm starting to think the answer is yes to that. And one thing that that I think Denver fans can take solace in, Christian Brown last year had moments in the postseason. So he's, you know, he he played on the brightest, uh, under the brightest lights on the biggest stage, and he had moments where he really impacted the game and made a major difference. So, you you know, you kind of know what to expect from him now in pressure situations. He's going to show up, man. He's going to compete. So, but that'll be, I think, the question around them. You know, they're always going to be compared if they don't win the championship, right? And they don't. They're always going to be compared to last year's team and like what's different. Yeah. Why wasn't it enough? And look, maybe it won't be that. Maybe it'll be because somebody else has closed the gap on them and just outplays them when, when they need to. And, and there's certainly enough teams in the West uh, that could that could look that way by the time we get there. So that's, that's going to be very interesting to watch Denver the rest of the year. The Dallas Mavericks, I think, need a trade. 
And I want to see the next month, before we get to the deadline, I want to see the next month with consistent minutes with Doncic and, and Kyrie because I just don't think we've seen enough lately of those of that duo to just see how great it can be. But nonetheless, they still look like they're a little deficient to me. What do you think they need as a team? Yeah, probably just the more size, you know, maybe a maybe a backup five or a power forward, or they can always use a three and D type of player on the perimeter, but everybody kind of needs those the way that, you know, the, the floor yeah. is spaced around a great player, most of these teams, and Dallas has two of them, uh, but mainly Luca. And so anybody that can help them defensively in the perimeter and be a consistent three-point shooter. You know, ironically, a Dorian Finney-Smith would be, I think, perfect for this group. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, you know, he, he's no longer there. So I, I, that's that's probably where I would go. Again, because of the ball dominance of Luca and and Kyrie, you, know, you look at anybody coming in offensively and saying, how, how are you going to have an impact if you're not just a catch-and-shoot guy or, a, or just a flat-out lob guy? That's really all there's room for. And they've already got guys that do that. You know, and Hardaway's playing great right now, so he's giving them that third scoring punch every single night. They got Lively back after he sat, so he's giving them the lob threat that they're looking for. Um, they just got Kleba back, and he's still getting his feet wet, but he's he's a difference maker defensively and can spot up and shoot the ball. So I don't know, man. I'm not sure if Dallas looks at their roster and thinks they need to do much, but if anything, maybe just find another big. Is the guy that – is it <laughs> – the guy I don't like there is Grant Williams, and I know that was their big move in the offseason. Yeah. But that's the, yeah, and I don't even know he if you can trade him. Than I thought he would. That's for sure. And I and he's taking you know he's taking a spot. He's taking salary. So I just look at him, and I don't know if they're looking to move a guy right after signing him. But to me, if it you know if we we're just playing fantasy basketball GM here, he's the guy that I would be throwing in the trade machine and just saying I don't know if he's the fit for what this team is evolving into, and he's the and in a position where you're just talking about size. Can you replace him with something else that gives you the size to go against your, um, you know, your Lakers and your Nuggets and your Timberwolves out west? So I don't know if that's even possible or on the radar, but it's it's where I would go. And then lastly, here let's go to Minnesota. Uh, let's go to the Timberwolves. Do they need a trade? They're number one. You're feeling good about yourselves, but you've never gone to the second round with this group. What do they need? Consistent three point shooter, I think. You know, you know, it's crazy. If I asked you. I wonder if you know the answer to this. Who on their roster takes the most threes per minute played? So the highest volume three-point shooter. Do you know who that is on their roster? <laughs> I would guess Nas Reed or Carl Anthony Towns is if you're talking it's on Nas a per-minute basis. It's Nas, it's Nas Reed. Reed. It's your, back, it's your backup center <laughs> is the highest center. volume three-point shooter on your roster, right, per minute played. He takes almost five a night in 22 minutes. Um, Anthony Edwards takes the most overall. And I think Anthony Edwards sometimes takes it's threes that help, help defenses. Um, yeah. because I think, you know, he wants it so badly and, and you know, you, you have a tendency to hit that, try to hit that home run at key times. So I think, I think if they could find a three point shooter out there that can, that can find minutes in their rotation, th there's minutes to be had there for somebody that can play off of a Edwards and towns and even some of the help that, you know, you have to provide on Gobert on, on his Offensive rebounding and his his right. his dive lobs because you have to get perimeter players kind of pinching in to help on that, and that means there are opportunities sometimes for uh, uh, the ball to be kicked back out of there or swung to a three point shooter. I think there's something there if they can find one. Yeah, I, I said last one, but we actually have Sacramento too. Let's hit them really quick. What does Sacramento need? Like, what's going on with with Davion Mitchell? You know, it, do you, do you need a backup point guard there? You know, because they've mm -hmm. got they've got Fox. 
and then and then after that they've got like a lot of wings who, who all do kind of similar type things they don't have a, like another guy that's just out there for 15 minutes to like push pace and just get guys open shots and i thought it was going to be mitchell and they love his defense he was one of the best defensive guards in the country that's why he really became a household name and he had a great ncaa tournament but and he's a lottery pick but now you look and he's he's playing 12 minutes a night and he's he's scoring three points a game and giving you one and a half assists so i don't know if there's if there's something going on there they're not thrilled with that or they're just using it for defense but i think they could use a, a like a true point guard that can facilitate and get the ball into the hands of, of their shooters of of guys um you know like malik monk and, and kevin herter and keegan right. murray and make it a little easier for them if the aaron fox isn't on the floor earlier in the year they were going to keon ellis for that i'm not sure why he has been collecting dnps lately i'm guessing just poor play but um, he was another guy, but I could see that point guard play, which point guard play when you're not just talking about guard play, cause there's a lot of guards in the NBA, but you're talking about a guy to run non Fox minutes. That's one of the hardest things to find in today's NBA. It seems there's just so few true point guards. And especially if you're talking about backup ones, I guess you could look at a Tyus Jones type mold and that type, but maybe those that's the move that they have to make. I think they also probably need a little bit more, um, defense just injected onto their team so you're probably talking about a defensive minded point guard that's tough you're starting to talk about something tough there legs that does it for today though man i liked it uh, on, on a little bit of a slow day in terms of games in the nba we were able to hit trade talk uh and, and kind of run through the contending teams and, and hit who trade so i thought it was a great show uh any parting thoughts Nah, just that look the, the big story was the siakam news and I think it's going to be a very active trading deadline. We just talked about a lot of these different teams and what they need. But the first first shot fired by the Indiana Pacers and going out, and, and well, I guess the Knicks with Ananobi as well. So Toronto yeah. uh, has done their part to help a couple other teams in the Eastern Conference get, get significantly better, I believe. Pacers-Kings tonight. I don't expect us to really get a look at the Pacers just quite yet. That might be more over the weekend. You've also got Thunder Jazz. I like this one. Two young teams that are on a, a little bit of a heater. Uh, those are your marquee games tonight. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. A little bit of an earlier hour. If you're new to the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. We're doing this four times a week with Legler, giving his insight on the NBA. And do us a favor and hit that like button for us on the way out. We'll see you guys on tomorrow.